Fun Ideas Productions presents the Fun Ideas Podcast. This is the Slow Poisoner. I come to you from the future with these words of warning. It's a hot horror planet. It's a hot horror planet. It's a hot. Hi, this is Mark Arnold, and welcome to Fun Ideas Podcast number 96. This episode is sponsored by the fine folks at Lee's Comics. Attention comic book fans, Lee's Comics of Mountain View, California has closed. But here's the good news. Lee's Comics eBay store is still going strong with over 10,000 vintage comics, the majority of which are now on sale for half off. Choose from Lee's huge stock of golden, silver, bronze, and modern age comics, and specializing in Silver Age Marvel titles. You can count on friendly service, accurate grading, and quick, secure shipping backed by a money-back guarantee. To check out Lee's eBay store, go to eBay. Click Advanced Search to the left of the search bar, scroll down to Sellers, and enter Lee's Comics, Inc., period. That's L-E-E-S-C-O-M-I-C-S. I-N-C, period. Don't forget the period. Lee's Comics is shipping daily with no delays. New items daily. Mention the Fun Ideas podcast and get a free bonus gift. Long title, Looking for the Good Times, Examining the Monkey Song One by One by Michael A. Ventrella and Mark Arnold. A book that examines each song, gives lots of details about each song and our own personal opinions. You can find this book on Amazon, Barnes & Nobles, and anywhere where good books are being sold. Our webpage is wordpress.monkeys.com, where you can see many of the songs and give your own opinions of them. And we will be discussing this more on Zilch. Hey, Michael, it says here we've written another book about the monkeys. Wasn't the first one enough? Not at all, Mark. Our original book, Looking for the Good Times, Examining the Monkey Songs One by One, was very successful, but only covered half the story. Which half? The group half. Our new book, Headquartered, A Timeline of the Monkey's Solo Years, covers the solo half. Who knew the monkeys record so many solo albums? Not only that, but this book covers all of their solo projects, including stage shows, horse racing, running record labels, directing and starring in TV shows and movies, voice acting, and jail. Jail? Did the monkeys go to jail? Ah, you have to read the book to find out. You've sold me. Have you sold them? Who, who, who's them? Those people out there listening to this. Well, listen to this. This book has discographies, photos, and other information about the prefab for Mickey, Davy, Peter, and Mike, the solo monkeys, plus another nifty cover by Scott Shaw. Wow, he did our last cover, and this one's equally good. Where can you get this masterpiece? Announcer. Announcer? That's me. <clears throat> Get Headquartered, a timeline of the monkey solo years, written by Michael A. Ventrella and Mark Arnold. Those two guys. It's available in hardback, paperback, or ebook from BearManorMedia.com or from Amazon. Get your copies today.
Cool. I'm going to get one today. There's been good news and bad news regarding my Warren Kremer book and my TTV scrapbook. Bad news first. The publisher I was working with has canceled both books. Now the good news. It's Bear Manor Media to the rescue. Not only will they be publishing Friendly Ghosts, Little Devils, Giants, and Rich Kids, the art and creations of Warren Kremer, and the TTV scrapbook, but now they will be in color. There will be more details soon. I'm also still working on my Mad and Disney books and a Popeye article. Do you like ska music? Do you know what it is? Today we feature fan and expert Aaron Carnes, who has written a book on the subject. This particular episode is also available in video version, making it our fourth video podcast. And here we are on Fun Ideas Podcast number 96. I had to look at my little note because I don't know what number we're on. Uh, today our guest is Aaron Carnes. He's a cinematographer and an author, um, written some articles for Metro. I don't know if you still do. Uh, written a couple books, and you have a current book called uh, the In Defense of Ska, or Ska Music, yes. and, but we'll probably talk about everything, so anyway, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. So, um, as I usually start out on the Fund Ideas podcast, I always say, tell us a little bit about yourself, and sure. how you got interested in music, and writing, and uh, cinematography, because I've seen you do all those things, and you might even do other things that I don't know, so go ahead. Sure. Um, so I started writing sometime in my twenties. I was actually interested in fiction for a good number of years. And then in 2010, I was started to feel like I wanted to write nonfiction and mostly because I was thinking that this would be a way to actually make money instead of just writing fiction and having no one pay for it. I thought, well, nonfiction might be a little bit more profitable. And I, I did a little bit of local journalism with some community papers, and then I started writing for the Metro, I think late 2010. Yeah. And from that, I built a you know, music journalism for freelance career out of that. I've written for, I don't really write, so occasionally I write for Metro, but I write for Good Times, Santa Cruz, I have the music editor there. Uh, I've written for a number of publications, including I did some articles for Playboy, hmm. um, Salon, OZ, Sierra Club. So I, I have a pretty good and, – and music music journalism is my primary outlet. Uh, occasionally I'll venture into other territories. Um, the the cinematography film stuff isn't really much of a part of my life these days, but it does have an interesting stepping stone to becoming a music journalist, and that's that I – was producer for the Cactus Club documentary, mm -hmm. um, and that's just uh, that's a that was a local club in San Jose from like '88 to 2002. Me and a couple guys made this film. When I was called Metro and I said, "Hey, uh, I really want to write for you," I got quizzed a little bit on my you know local music knowledge, mm -hmm. and so I pulled that one out. I said, "Oh, I just finished this." film about the Cactus Club, and I think that definitely gave me an in. So not a big part of my life now, but definitely a big part of how I got to become a music journalist. Mm -hmm. um, in terms of ska music, um, in the 90s, I was a huge ska fan. I was a ska musician. 
Mm. I got into ska in the early 90s. 92, I think, was when I first heard the music. I was I saw the band Skank and Pickle. And yeah. uh, you probably know them, right? Because yes, you're from yeah. South Bay. I saw them at a club called uh, One Step Beyond in Santa Clara. Do you remember that place? Yep. Okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Everyone came through that club. But, yeah. <laughs> they, you know, they were local. They're from technically Los Gatos, but, uh, you know, just San Jose, the South Bay. And uh, a friend of mine told me to go see them. I was just kind of interested in, like, local underground music. That was sort of my passion when I was in high school. And somebody kind of pointed me in the direction of Skate and Pickle, and that was just, like, a moment of, just being blown away and just totally made me a fan of this music that I learned was called ska and eventually learned a whole bunch about it. So yeah. as a music journalist in, you know, in the last decade, you know, I've always loved, continued to love ska, but I got more interested in music writing and, and I was reading more music books and reading more articles. And I think I was aware of this already, but it really became apparent to me how little music journalism and, you know, people who were tastemakers and all these people, they did not care about Scott at all. In fact, it was just a joke. It was just something to make fun of. <laughs> and it's, I think it's even gotten worse, like, with the way Scott has become, like, a little joke to throw in TV shows now, like, the last decade. Hmm. Just a little little Scott reference, like, the character, such and such character used to be into Scott, and it's, like, some humiliating part of their past that everyone right. jokes about. It's kind of like mimes or clowns yeah. or something they used to exactly, be cool yeah. they're scary or considered you know not not cool to be interested in or whatever yeah, exactly yeah <laughs> that was a big motivator for me to want to write a book about ska mm -hmm. and try to say something about this music and the scene which i feel like is so much more than everybody jokes about you know, people who were not involved in the scene didn't go see these bands it's not the jokes of it being all these dorky white kids in, in, in fedoras <laughs> and checkered pants, that's not what ska was about, and that's not what the scene was like. Yeah. And it kind of irks me that the, the jokes are, aren't even accurate. And so I feel like I wanted to defend the music and also kind of educate about the music, too. Right. So that's, that's what, what led me to this book. Mm -hmm. Well, I, I, you gave me a copy of it. Obviously, I didn't have time to read it in like two days here because I'm busy all the time. But I kind of sure. uh, flipped through it on the computer and everything. And uh, I do have kind of a working knowledge of ska. And I'm, I'm familiar or, and or a fan of some major ska bands of the past. Um, I assume you talk about the history where ska originated and everything yeah. like that. Um, what I wanted to know, and I will read it in the book, but I mean, you, if you could kind of give a brief summary, uh, did it originate out of reggae music or is it kind of its own thing? What, how did it start? So reggae music evolved from ska. Oh, okay. So ska music started in the 50s mm -hmm. in Jamaica and kind of went into the early 60s. The music in Jamaica was sort of a gradual evolution. So ska music... And then in the mid-60s, you start seeing what they call rock steady, which is a little different of a beat, a little different tempo. And then in the late 60s, they start, it starts to turn into reggae, but it's sort of the early version of reggae, which is a little bit more of a upbeat, bouncy style. Yeah. And then in the 70s, it turns into what we call now roots reggae, which is sort of the more popular version of reggae, the slower version. The, is that like the, the Bob Marley type of stuff? Yeah, the, like yeah. the really deep bass, the, the, the spiritual, all that stuff. That's what's kind of more popular. But ska was sort of the, the beginning 
Mm. I mean, aside from, I'm sorry from what they call Mento, which is sort of more indigenous folk <laughs> music. That was sort of the predecessor to Scott. But yeah, Scott mm. was kind of the beginning of what led to reggae. And then I didn't know it was that way. So. Okay. And then the late seventies, <laughs> yeah, Scott came back in the late seventies in England. Right. Right. That's the bands like the Specials. Yeah, and that's Selector, the first and stuff I heard. Yeah. They were listening to old Scott records. That was out. It was just kind of out of fashion at that point. Um, it was white punk kids, and there were some Caribbean kids. The white punk kids kind of had a thought it was this cool, like, old music. The, the Caribbean kids thought it was sort of, like, boring dad music as the stuff their dad listened to that was, like, you know, the reggae stuff was where it was at, not this old ska music. But they sort of got together and, and created a new version of ska, which was a lot faster. It was a lot more political, and it, it dealt with the issues uh, that were happening in England, the politics of England with racism, with uh, anti-immigration, all these, all those things, and and they were almost all the bands, all of them except for Madness, were, were mixed race too, which was a political statement in and of itself. And that's where, that's where the new revival of ska began. If you scan that, and then from there it took off and came to every other country on the planet, and it kind of created scenes and stuff. Mm-hmm. And so probably the biggest bands in, during that time were like the English Beat, and uh, yeah. uh, I think. You, Fun Boy Three was one, and uh, they were like they were like more of a new wave band, but they were three members of the Specials when the Specials broke yeah. up. And okay. Started this band, okay. Yeah. And let's see, what's what's the there's another group. There's, um, I always think of the Twin Tone label, but I can't think of all the groups. And uh, um, I guess uh, you know English Beat also begat like Fine Young Cannibals and Drinking yeah. Roger and and uh, uh, General Public too. Yeah, general public. That's one I was thinking of, and um, uh, and then later uh, there was groups like No Doubt and stuff like that, and they had a very yeah. big ska influence. Is that related in any way? I mean, obviously they're American and not yeah British, but I mean, is there a direct lineage, or is it just hey, we're interested in ska, we're going to do it too? <laughs> there is a there is a direct lineage, and this is where some of the ska narrative gets a little off by the general like mainstream narrative mm-hmm. culture. The narrative is that in the mid-90s, there was a third-wave ska revival. Bands like No Doubt, Real Big Fish, um, Save Ferris, Mighty Mighty Boston's. That's kind of how it's presented. But what really happened was when the, when the two-tone British bands were popular in, the, in like 79, 80, 81, mm-hmm. that music trickled into the U.S. It wasn't mainstream. It was very, very popular, very mainstream in England. This was like top 40 pop music. Right? right, it was very popular in the U.S. It was like underground music. It didn't have a big audience, but it had a very loyal, you know, rabid audience. So that sort of created all these '80s ska bands that were never bigger than the club scenes. Like you had in L.A., you had this band called the Untouchables. Mm-hmm. Uh, in this, in the Bay Area, there was a band called the Uptones. Oh, yeah. uh, Boston had a band called Bim Scala Bim. In New York, there's a band called The Toasters, but those that band's more known because they continued on through the 90s, and they were popular in the 90s. So that's sort of what happened. That Those bands formed in the early to mid-80s, and they created really vibrant scenes within their cities, and they started touring in the mid to late 80s, and um, more bands started coming out in the late 80s. Skank and Pickle started in like 88, 89, something like that. You see a whole new bunch of bands in the late 80s and most of those bands are more punk oriented that yeah. they're forming in the late 80s 
and, and then more bands are forming in the early 90s. And by the time you get to the mid 90s, there's this really huge, vibrant underground scene, hundreds of bands. There's record labels that are devoted to ska that are doing super well. There's zines, there is um, compilations, there's tons of compilations. Mm-hmm. And these bands are on tour, they're making livings off of it. And then you start to see these bands get on the radio and MTV after right. all of this has been building up for like 15 years. <laughs> and then it's like five or six bands from that are the ones that are put on MTV and the radio. And they're the ones sort of presented as American ska third wave. Mm-hmm. But, but they came from a, a, a scene of hundreds and hundreds of bands and they were all unique. They could did their own version of it. You know, they had their own image. So that was part of the thing too, is that Scott was like really diverse in terms of its musical styles and in terms of how the bands dressed and stuff. But because there was only five bands that got on, the, on, on MTV, the way they looked sort of became, this is what Scott looks like, you know, money, money, mm-hmm. Boston's wearing flannel, Real Big Fish had Hawaiian shirts, so this that's ska. Right, right. Yeah, but that's not re- that's not reality. <laughs> so how has it gone to that? Because you're saying that that was pretty popular yeah. and successful, even though it was very limited and narrow and focused. Sure. Um, to where you said earlier that, uh, like, present day, people kind of make fun of it. Where did that kind of turn of events happen? I think it came from that mostly because – Scott left the mainstream around 99, 2000, you know, and then when it left, it kind of became really uncool. People, you know, where it was once maybe a teeny bit cool when it was on MTV, it just became the antithesis of uncool right away. Mm. Just nerd kids and their dorky hats. That's how it got presented. And a lot of bands quit. A lot of bands broke up. A lot of bands tried to present themselves like they weren't ska, like they would alter their music a little bit just so that it, could be construed as a different style, but also a lot of bands continued on. And a lot of people continued to be fans of the music, but it's, it went underground again. Yeah. And as far as like mainstream culture was concerned, the music was totally dead. But for the next two decades, from then into present, it continued on in the, in the underground scene and mm-hmm. it continued to be popular. So I think what started happening about five, 10 years ago is that some of the kids who grew up in, in the 90s who weren't really super into the scene, but they kind of got swept up into what was happening in the mainstream culture. They're now creating shows and they're, they're, they're kind of involved in, in, in that, the media basically. So of course they go, Oh, I remember this dumb thing I was into for two years and how, how stupid is that? But I used to wear fedoras and Hawaiian shirts and I was really into real big fish. <laughs> And that thing's totally dead. It's so funny. So they would write that into a show. And I think it's getting like more and more reinforced that it was a two-year trend that was ridiculous. It was just right in between grunge and swing. Just to, and, that, and it's like they're missing the whole through line and that it's always been, since the two-tone stuff, it's always been popular. There's always been like, a, there's always been a lot of bands. There's always been a lot of fans. And there's always been a lot of versions of it. Yeah. In fact, there's like a ton of new young bands right now that are playing the music and they're doing really well and they have audiences and they're making interesting music. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So do you think because of what's currently going on, what you're talking about on the underground level, do you think it'll make a comeback yet again? 
I don't think it's going to come down. I don't think it's going to come back to the mainstream now. I think it's going to stay in the underground. But I think some people outside of the scene who like underground music, I think they're starting to notice that ska is a part of that and that it's not just the, 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 the trendy stuff in the 90s, that it is more than that. So I think it is sort of developing in a, in a more organic way, but I don't see it becoming like super popular interesting yeah it's like I, I i was thinking about my record collection and i go i have an awful lot of scott stuff but you know and i didn't even realize it because i mean you know because you're saying the hats and you know the mm -hmm. the shirts and everything like that um like I love Madness, but I think I love them not because they do ska-type music. I think it's because they're funny. You know, they do comical stuff, and a lot of their videos, you know, yeah, were really amusing, like the typical Dar House one, you know, and things like that. I mean, they did tons of records that didn't even make the charts here. Uh, and um, they're, they're gigantic in England. They're like legends in England. Yeah, they have so yeah. many hits in England, yeah. Yeah, and in fact, you know, some of their albums aren't readily available here, so you have to get the imports and stuff like that. So, yeah, yeah. Um, but you know, and I didn't even realize it. You know, it's like I just like things like English Beat, and I like things like you know, No Doubt and stuff like that. And I wasn't really thinking about, oh, yeah, it's all that same type of ska beat. So I guess I'm a fan without even really knowing it. <laughs> um, but those two-tone bands, I think, like, it was baked into the, the equation right away that they were not going to be traditional Jamaican music, that it was always going to be a mixture of ska and other stuff. So yeah. you see Madness and English Beat and the specials, they all were experimenting musically, and they were never staying true to ska music. And so that's kind of how they set up ska for this whole new, like, revival that happened since the late 70s. Yeah. Yeah. It, it seems like they always still seem to have their fans because, I mean, we're talking about the Metro that you used to write, or that you still write for, or you used to write for? Right? Uh, occasionally, but mostly okay. I write for other papers, yeah. Okay. Uh, but uh, they used to have the free concerts during the summer, which mm -hmm. are long gone, but so am I. I don't live down there. Um, but they used to get the English beat, like, yeah. every other year, and it's like, you know, some people were there that they go, oh, I love the English beat, and they're all dancing and everything like that. And then I would do the bit where it's like, hey, come on, let's go listen to them. They go, do I even know them? And then, you know, you know, everyone I've ever brought to see the English beat, they go, I know that song. I know that song. I know that song, you know, because mm -hmm. it's just like they just don't realize Mirror in the Bathroom and all those different ones that they did you know, were played commonly on the radio for a time, you know, it's like, and then, mm -hmm. you know, just got drilled in the head, I guess, as far as memorable. So, it, 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 so that's why it seems kind of odd that you'd say that uh, you don't think it'll make any sort of comeback currently. But I mean, not, in a, not in a mainstream way. I think it's making a pretty strong comeback in the underground world. Like, I think it's more vibrant and energetic in the, in the underground scene now than it was maybe even like five or ten years ago with the new younger bands because these new younger bands are they're coming at it from a different way they're coming at it as like as like you know punk punks kind of like underground punks that don't want anything to do with the mainstream do they sound any different i mean yeah uh, you, like you said that the ones that uh originated in england in the 80s and 90s kind of had a political 
bent. Mm -hmm. I mean, is that still the case or they tend to write on other subjects? It's more, I would say it's more political now than more political. Okay. Than in like say the nineties, there was nineties was a mix, mix of bands that were political and goofy and all kinds of different things. But a lot of the bands now I would say more, more geared towards being punk and Mm -hmm. being political of the bands, the new crop of bands, I would say. Yeah. (laughs) And on the new crop of bands, they tend to, if they're staying underground, I guess, do they have recording contracts or even press uh, discs or anything? Or are they just doing live? Because right now with the pandemic, (laughs) how do you do anything? I don't know. So what what, what do they do? There's a few good indie labels that are um, kind of at the head of this, like Bad Time Records is is definitely a major one here in the the U.S. Okay. So, so so, yeah. they are distributed. It's just not like, you know, top 40 radio as it were, but, yeah. you know, you know, exactly, but, yeah. but, you know, you could even say that, you know, not just about ska, you could say that about like general rock and roll. You know, it's like, that's true. even that's not even real mainstream anymore, strangely <laughs> enough. So there was um, a, a few years ago, I would say maybe what, five years ago. Yeah. There was a band called the interrupters that had a pretty big ska song. Um, She's kerosene. That, got, yeah. that song got pretty big, um, but I think that was um, a little bit of a fluke. And those bands are backed by um, that band is like friends with and supported by Rancid, which is why I think they ended up getting that <laughs> that sort of push. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, what what is the future? What do you expect to get out of the book? I mean, just to make a few ska converts, or <laughs> or is it just like a pet project for yourself? Saying I love ska and I don't care who knows. It. <laughs> <laughs> um, converts, in a way, yes. I mean, I'm hoping to I'm hoping to change the narrative a little bit with like music people. You know, people that are into music that will give the time of day to every single subgenre of alternative music and give it all this respect and, and put it into the, the, the thread of, of, of the musical landscape. I'm hoping that ska will be considered a little bit more seriously within that. Mm-hmm. That's kind of my hope. And, I, and I've talked to a fair amount of people who either didn't like ska, didn't know much about ska, that have taken an interest in my book and have read it or read parts of it and have felt already a little bit like, huh, maybe I should reconsider my, my, my biases towards ska music. So mm-hmm. and that's what I'm, I, I think the book will be loved by people who already like ska, but I think people who don't know much about it or don't like it or claim to not like it, I think <laughs> they'll enjoy it. And I think that they'll come away with stuff that they didn't expect. And that's yeah. respect for this music. Yeah. For me, I had respect for the music, but I didn't know much about its history. Yeah. So it's like, as soon as I saw your book, I feel like, cool. Now, I will tell you the truth. <laughs> we haven't talked for years, I think, you know, but it's yeah. like, um, I knew you were working on this book, but for some reason, I confused it. I thought you wrote a book about the San Jose music scene that is what you did your uh, film, documentary yeah. on. So, um, but did that documentary begat this book as it were <laughs> is that what caused it to come about or not really uh i mean the, the documentary helped kind of give me a leg up into getting into music journalism and then music journalism doing that for a few years really made me want to write a book i actually started working on this book in like 2013 mm-hmm. so it was a pretty long process to write it so i had been working on it for quite a while so yeah so i guess indirectly it did yeah 
And I think I remember you mentioning it. But for some reason, I always thought, oh, yeah, he's doing a book on the San Jose <laughs> music scene. I was like, good luck to you on that. Because, I mean, it's like a documentary is one thing. But it's like, yeah. unless you're in the Bay Area, I don't know. But, you know, then I was surprised. Like, oh, it's about Scott in general. Okay. Okay. <laughs> um, so it's good to read before you do a podcast. <laughs> and you play. Um, but um, when you're doing your music journalism, let's kind of back up a little bit. Um, sure. You did you cover all types of music, or were you assigned? How, how did that career work? Did they tell um, you where I've to always, go? Or? Yeah, I've always written about a variety of music, and I've rarely ever been assigned anything. The that world, at least from my experience, is generally like, yes, you can write for us, or yes, we're open to let you write for us, but pitch us all your ideas. Oh wow! And so yeah. you're always the person coming up with the ideas. Every once in a while, an editor that you have a good relationship might say, hey, can you write this thing for me? But generally, it's like you come up with the ideas, you pitch them, you convince me to let you write this. So I was well, – I did that. I've done that a lot. still do that. And, um, I, you know, I, as, a, as a music fan, musician, I've always had an interest in, like, a wide range of styles. So And I've, I've approached writing that way, too. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so what other genres have you written about or that you like, even if you haven't written about them? Oh, yeah. I mean, everything. I, I It depends on the outlet. I mean, with, when I write now, I contribute a lot to Santa Cruz, so it's dependent on their scene, which there's a lot of, like, indie rock, indie folk kind of stuff. Um, I'll do, like, hip-hop stuff, too. Um, you know, I think the styles were – probably the styles I do, the, the least amount would be something more, like – heavy metal or jazz like those are things i just i don't necessarily dislike them i just don't have a lot of knowledge mm-hmm. but things like you know indie rock and you know even a little bit of reggae or you know hip-hop those things i i know a lot more folk music santa cruz loves like folk music and bluegrass mm-hmm. so i do that stuff too so you know it's really and I'll, I'll write about music i'm not that into because i like music and i like reading about <laughs> music so i'm happy to do it we're dancing <laughs> yeah <laughs> anyway um but uh yeah the reason i asked is because uh i had a, a female friend i'm still friends with her she's down in the san jose area and she was also a music writer mainly online and she would get told what to to do oh, but she also had a big audience a, a big um uh, knowledge base, I should say, not that. Uh, and uh, in her case, they gave her free tickets. And I used to be her quasi date back in the old days because, you know, I was single and she was too. And, you know, we'd go to things and we'd go to like heavy metal one week, you know, uh, like one of the uh, groups was called like the Black Label Syndicate. Uh-huh. And then the next week, uh, we saw uh, like Total Punk with the Prodigy, and then uh, the next week we saw Michael Bublé. <laughs> it's like I was fine going to it because I just love music too. But I was like, uh-huh. you know, it's it, it's it was like a weird mixture. And of course, different fit people were like, "You saw Prodigy," and then other people, "You saw Michael Bublé," and that's like, yeah, <laughs> you know. <laughs> so I was just wondering out, you know. And and also, when I write my articles mainly about animations and comic books and stuff like that, they usually assign me something, you know, so that's why I'm like, you know, wow, you can come up with your own ideas. (laughs) Now, I do with my books. Most of my books, I come up with my own ideas because 
you know, I've been doing it so long. I said, can I do a book on this? And most of the time they'll say yes. Sometimes they, yeah. You know, but, um, when I, when I used to live in San Jose, uh, I used to, I used to kind of get into shows a lot more. It would like, in a way it almost didn't matter if I was writing about it or not. You could just kind of request to get to know the clubs. And mm-hmm. the, the, the one I always wanted to go to was the Mount Winery in Saratoga. Cause that, those are like amazing shows. Whether or not you like the music, it's just a nice environment. And so I just got to see a few of those shows for free. The best one I got to go to was uh, when Weird Al played the Mount Winery. I got to go, I got like front, like maybe second row tickets. And that was that was awesome. Mm-hmm. That was like one of my favorite shows I've been to. <laughs> the one I used to like go to, and now I can let it out of the bag because I don't, I don't even know if they do them anymore. Uh, I used to sneak into the Montalvo shows because uh, where my dad's house was and is, uh, he basically was in the backyard of the of Montalvo. You know, you have to go down the road and into the bushes and stuff like that yeah. but you can sneak into any concert for free and um you know i saw a lot of big name acts because i got a few things over the years mm-hmm. and you know the one i remember well is i went to see ringo star just because this is the closest a beetle will be in my living room i'm gonna go yeah you know? and you just had to go after they started because then they weren't looking for tickets yeah, but if you went before that, they they want a ticket, so you, you always have to miss the very beginning of the show. But yeah, <laughs> I, I never got into uh, Mountain Winery for free. That was always oh, yeah. a little more difficult. So you know, but I saw a few things there. Yeah. Um, so where do you live now? Are you Sacramento or are you in Santa Cruz? Uh, Sacramento. Oh, okay. So I write like I'm the music editor at Santa Cruz newspaper, Good Times, but yeah, I live in Santa Cruz, Sacramento. So okay, so do you commute a lot for this? No, I do it all uh, phone, um, online. I, the only time I really find myself going down there is if I'm working on a cover story. I might feel like I need to go in person and do some reporting, but most of it I can do over the phone or online. Is there stuff to write about? Because, you know, as we keep saying, there's no shows for the most part yeah. going on. Or, yeah, uh, it kind of halted at first for um, a month or two. And then most of that, it halted because the paper was running out of money because <laughs> all the businesses were closing. And so there was no, the paper was being consumed. People were reading the paper, <laughs> but they were like suddenly just out of ad revenue. So they were like, they had to just really turn it down to like nothing to keep it going. And then, businesses started reopening they got a few grants and stuff like that so they were able to kind of get back opening and so they they asked me to continue to do music stuff so we've been i've been interviewing bands who putting out records just putting out singles just whatever you know musicians are pretty active putting out stuff mm-hmm. um whether or not their shows so there's a lot, a lot of stuff for me to write about i usually write like pretty much every week these days about mm-hmm. some band in santa cruz so you're mainly doing interviews more than anything else or yeah 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 you know i i'm totally unaware i mean it's like uh, i i know some movie theaters have opened up but i mean have shows come back at all where they're like wearing a mask or something or is it so in santa cruz and it's probably true in other places what you'll see is a few places are doing outdoor dinner in a movie shows okay in santa cruz there's a place called michael's on main which is mainly a restaurant, but they've been a pretty solid part of the music scene. But they have like a place inside with a stage and a couple hundred people. So they reopened serving food and they would do stuff where they'd have a band play and they would have outdoor tables spread apart. So it would be probably like 40, 50 people, but you would pay your ticket would be a 
dinner in a movie. So you're paying for your dinner and the movie's entertainment. Right. So there's a little bit, that's the only thing that's really going on Mm -hmm. in in terms of a legit way. People are probably putting on house shows, but that's the only thing that's going on in a legit way in California, at least. I don't know about other states. I think up here, there are a few places that uh, still have live bands, but they they all took a break, you know, certainly from like March to like June or July. Yeah. There was nothing. <laughs> and then um but there's like this restaurant up here that tends to play like jazz and uh jazz and blues and stuff like that. And it's called Max. And I haven't been back there since they started their schedule, but I mean they have a venue that that can accommodate outside seating and, and yeah. a band playing outside as opposed to inside, so maybe that's probably what they're doing. I just haven't gone back there because you know, I, I just don't, I, it's not like I'm afraid. I mean, you know, we've, my uh, fiance and I, we've traveled all around Oregon. We just play it safe. We wear a mask and stuff like that. And, yeah. you know, but we just don't go into big crowd things. Like the year before we were going up to like uh, <laughs> the state fair in Salem because every night there was like a huge oldie old band like the beach boys was one night and steve miller and then REO Speedwagon, and so we were driving uh it's salem's like an hour away so we were driving like an hour every night you know yeah (laughs) so but i actually actually haven't got any shows i mean i'm not completely against it but i kind of the way i view the situation we're in now is that you kind of pick and choose your risks and you you try not to do every single risk you can think of so you know, hiking is important to me. So my wife and I will hiking and we try to be safe and try to, you know, go in. Not a lot of people are there and, and I, we haven't, you know, we'll go pick up food, bring it home, that kind of stuff. So kind of just pick and choose a few risk areas, but not every single thing. And seeing live music, as much as I love live music, doesn't feel like a high priority for that risk, you know, yeah. the, the kind of things I'm choosing to risk myself on. Yeah. Yeah. I was just curious how the scene was down there, but you yeah, know, it's like, sounds like, you know, it's an easy way to do it and that you don't have to be face-to-face as long as you can do like yeah. what we're doing, a Zoom meeting or over yeah. the phone or whatever. You know, you can uh, interview almost anybody if they want to pull out their guitar or whatever and start strumming away and start <laughs> playing something for you. You can get a, an exclusive concert that way or something, you know. <laughs> um, let's see. What was, was I going to ask you? Um, just wanted to know, you know, you said you kind of, put down the camera as it were that's kind of how i met you in the first place i believe yeah. you know, it was our mutual friend jaime and that was the know, comedy thing right that's yeah. When we first met. Yeah. yeah so i mean how did that originate and how did you get into that just out of curiosity so i was interested music and film were both things i was interested in since i was a kid uh i started playing music in band in fourth grade and i started doing bands with my friend at about sophomore so before that, my friends and I would always, I would say probably like junior high to early high school, we would always get together and make movies with my parents' camcorder. So these two things in my life were like the things I loved. So when I went to college, I, I, I went to college, I did junior college and then I dropped out, but then I went back to college when I was in like, like 27, 28. And I was like, film is the thing that I should study because it's one of the things I love, right? Mm-hmm. And I got a degree at San Jose State with film. I, I, I started that Cactus documentary while I was in college and finished it after. 
And I did some other stuff, some one-off gigs, like the thing with Jaime. Um, I did some wedding videos. I, you know, I did a variety of things, but I really just, I don't know. I just didn't enjoy it <laughs> when it came <laughs> down to it. Like, I liked the idea of it, but I didn't enjoy the act of it. And yeah. I just was like, ah. And I, I got into writing in my 20s yeah. just because I started really falling in love with books and stuff. And mm -hmm. I really wanted to, I don't know, I really wanted to write books or wanted to write short stories or whatever. So, I don't know, I just did that. I didn't necessarily feel like there was much of an opportunity with that. But, yeah, like I said, I burnt out on film, but mm -hmm. I was like, you know, maybe there's something with writing. Maybe I can do something that's nonfiction or write for a newspaper. Like, those are paying jobs, so yeah, <laughs> it's not the same as trying to convince somebody to buy your, like, weird novel, right? Yeah. And so, so yeah. I moved into that territory, and I really enjoyed it. I, and I think I could see – it gave me a lot of insight into the things that people are passionate about versus the things that you enjoy doing. Mm -hmm. I didn't enjoy the, the work of film. I liked the idea of it, but I didn't enjoy the work that it, that it took to make it. But mm -hmm. when it came to writing, I, I did enjoy it. And all the things that were not easy about writing, you do these long interviews, you transcribe your interviews, you try to <laughs> put it all together. Like all these things are really difficult, but you know, I, I, I never tried to get out of it. I always enjoyed doing it. Yeah. On some level, so I figured, well, I, you know, I should keep doing this because I actually like this. Yeah, I think we're very similar in that regard. Now, yeah. I, I wanted to be a cartoonist originally, but, uh, yeah, I, I did a number of years uh, with my friend Dane. Uh, we did a bunch of celebrity interviews and stuff like that, but, um, and we did a couple comedy shows and things like that, but I had fun editing them and stuff like that at the time, but I found that to be very, very tedious, you know? mm -hmm. and, uh, you know, it's like, I want to just say, here's what I shot, you fix it, you do, you do it, you know, and, um, but, uh, you know, so I'm, I'm like you, I kind of moved off into more writing, um, mm -hmm. yeah, but I, I was just curious, um, you know, it's like, so on your writing then, um, did you have a preference? I know you did a book, and you'll have to refresh my memory because it's been so many years. Um, did you have a preference for writing more fiction or nonfiction? Well, I started out with fiction, and I think that was the dream. But I, right. And I didn't really consider nonfiction until I was thinking of it as a way to make money. But as soon as I moved into nonfiction, like, the fiction just stopped. Mm, like, okay. That just became what I liked. And I also felt like I was much better at it than I was at fiction. Yeah. So, I don't know. That it's, it's just it's like similar. It's just like, yeah, I think you know, there's a there's that dream of writing a novel, but and I can do it to the point where it's a job. Like I can do it every day. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I, I haven't really written fiction in quite a while. What was that book that you did put out? I ever forgot. It was called uh, True True Stories from okay. a Waste Time Called Earth. Yeah, it's just self published. Yeah. But so, I did like yeah. it at the time. I said, wow, yeah. this is actually really good. Because yeah, I don't know if you get this because you're a published author, but you get people that go, can you read this? And then <laughs> you go, ah, I don't want to read this, but you can't tell them no. You know, It's like, yeah, I'll take a look at it. And then you go, oh, this is pretty good, you know, or, you know, and it's like, and then when it's bad, you have to tell, uh, how can I improve it? Uh, stop being a writer? No. <laughs> <You know? laughs> 
but you know you have you know from what i've read on the on that book well i've read that book completely but on the the new ska book um you have the type of writing style that i i like you know it's very mm -hmm. easy to read you don't get too scholarly you know because there's a lot of writers that think oh i'm writing about music i gotta be really highbrow and write you know intellectually yeah. about stuff and it's like just write how you not how you speak necessarily because it might have a lot of slang but you know it's like just where if you're trying to convey an idea like you're doing you know write in a way that makes it easy for the other person to grasp it so yeah i i definitely enjoy reading like really dense long music history books but i didn't want to write that kind of book personally Mm -hmm. I wanted to write a book for, for In Defense of Scott that was more, took more points of view and argued the points of view. So, I mean, the book, the larger point of view of the book is that I'm defending Scott, that I think it deserves respect, that it hasn't gotten. But the book is cons consists of, each chapter is a separate essay, mm -hmm. and each essay has some specific point of view that I'm telling. It's not just here's this band and here's their history. It's, it's a, there's an angle and then there's a reason I'm telling you all this information. So that was something I wanted to do for this, mm -hmm. you know, rather than, even though I enjoy the, the 500 page, you know, crazy in depth, uh, you, you probably way too much information history book. I didn't, I didn't want to put like that my in. books. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if you know this guy named Stu Shostak. He has a, a podcast and I've been on it a couple of times and, um, a couple of my books have been these big 500 page tomes, like on Dennis yeah. the Menace or something. And he goes, Oh, good, another doorstop. You know, <laughs> it's like, <laughs> you know, um, well, that stuff's really important because th that stuff, you know, whether it's in cartoons or music, that stuff is like documents, it, it yeah. exists as documents for this stuff, you know, and for people who enjoy it, that's amazing. For people who don't enjoy it, it, it still exists. As the, as the document for the stuff for other people to read and other people to kind of put out there in other ways. So right. I, I really appreciate that kind of writing and that kind of stuff. Yeah. And I always figure, hey, if you wanted to distill it down further into a slimmer volume, yeah. well, you got mine as a reference now. <laughs> it's yeah. like, uh, I just cram everything. I, I, there's this other guy that uh, is named Mark Grams has written a lot of books about old radio shows and stuff like that. And he writes like these ones that are like two inch thick about uh well he's done dusty's duffy's tavern and things like that you know and it's like how can you write so much about it but he gets all this minutiae history about everything so. yeah um so what's next on the agenda after ska i mean is uh there another music volume or are you going to go in a totally different direction what what, what are your thoughts for other books I do have, uh, I have a couple book ideas in the works. They're music related. They're not ska related, but yeah, I'm not, I don't really want to share them yet just because I'm putting together proposals and I kind of want to get them out. And I don't know. I kind of want to get a yes on them before I make okay. any sort of public declaration. It's a little too early. Okay. That's fine. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Cause sometimes people are like, I'm working on this, you know, which yeah. is usually me. So it's like, you know. <laughs> um, this, this book, you know, this independence of ska as compared to the first one we talked about, which I self-published, I got uh, a publisher to put it out and I got a publisher to put it out based off of a proposal. And to me, that seems like that, that, that works for me because 
having a having a proposal and having a publisher interested that like gave me the the push to do it and it gave me the confidence that I knew I would do it so that's yeah. when I was really talking about it publicly was when I got that deal with the publisher like in 2018 um so that's kind of how I'm for the, at this stage that's how I'm going to approach it like if I don't have a deal, even if I start working on it, I don't know that I'm going to finish it. So yeah, if I, yeah. somebody says, yes, here's a contract, I know I'll finish it. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So that's what I kind of meant if you were working on it. Yeah. Like that you already have a contract set up. Yeah. No, no, not yet. Like, like for me, I'm working on a Disney book and a mad book, but I have contracts out there. So, um, you know, but I have other ideas, but I'm not really going to throw them out there because you might take it. No. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> But uh, you, you mentioned you have a publisher for this. So what's the publisher? I was just curious. And how, how did you approach it or did they approach you? So they're called Clash Books. And by the way, my book's available for pre-order on their website. Okay. Um, the book comes out in May next year, but oh, you, can, okay. you can order it now on the website. And, um, you know, if you order it off their website, you'll get it in April. Um, it's going to be probably on Amazon and bookstores, probably for pre-order in December, but you know, it's, it's, I think it's better to get it off the web publisher's website and, and more money goes to me and the publisher if, than if you got it on Amazon anyway. So mm-hmm. let's put that out there. Um, Clash, they do kind of a variety of things, um, fiction, nonfiction, poetry. I was, I wrote this proposal in uh, summer of 2018 because re- part of the reason I wrote it is because I didn't feel like I had a really good direction for this book. Mm-hmm. I was sort of collecting interviews and having all kinds of different thoughts about which direction it should go, but always sort of changing my mind on that. So I wrote a proposal partly to refine my idea, but also to get myself to do it. Like I'm going to write this proposal. If somebody says yes, then I'm going to put energy into it. Mm-hmm. And if it doesn't, maybe I need to like think of something else. Mm-hmm. because at, before that the first five years i would work on it put it aside work on it put it aside you know it never never was like a top priority because i think because it, it didn't have any anything invested in terms of other people right you know what i mean yeah so i i was under the impression you had an agreement all these years and i go wow no. they're, they're really patient <laughs> no. <laughs> no it was mostly interviewing those first five years and uh continuously brainstorming and sort of saying this is what I'm going to do and then changing it. And a lot of research is a ton and ton of research. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, I knew a lot about ska before 2013, but in that five years, I really learned a lot about ska. So that put me in a really good position to write the book the last few years. Mm-hmm. I wrote them a proposal that was a defense. And that's actually when I came up with the idea that I was defending the music when I wrote the proposal. Mm-hmm. That's where it clicked. I said, this is the idea. This is the angle this is how I'm going to talk about Scott. I'm going to like sort of take the fact that it's made fun of and I'm going to sort of address it directly and bake it into the book itself, not sort of skirt around it. Mm-hmm. And I sent it to this publisher clash because they were friend of a friend. Oh. I asked a friend, he's a publisher who worked solely in fiction and he loves Scott. I knew he wouldn't put it out because he didn't deal in nonfiction, but mm-hmm. I thought he might know somebody. He said, Oh, you should try clash. They're, great they're amazing people i sent them the proposal and they said yes they're the only people that said yes by the way i sent the proposal to a variety of agents publishers okay 
Yeah, yeah that was my next question. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I got a few passes and a few and a lot of nothings, you know. <laughs> they said yes, we love this idea. You know, we did a contract, it happened pretty fast. Yeah. After they said yes and I got to know them, I learned that they don't like Scott at all. <laughs> <laughs> but they're fascinated with it. And the fact that I wanted to defend it completely piqued their interest. Yeah. And they put them all on board with this book idea. And, you know, they've really come to love the book. Yeah. Even though uh, not exactly big fans of the music still, but maybe appreciate it a little bit more than they did. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, it, it all boils down, like I said, it's how you write. And I think you're a yeah. good writer because um, a good writer can convey an idea uh, where, you know, if, like you said, if you're not interested in it, but you like the person's writing, you can still be interested in it on that level saying, I don't like Scott. This book hasn't changed my mind, but I like how I like his argument. I like how he's talking about it. So, you know, I'll give this a read, you know, um, you mentioned you did a lot of research and stuff like that besides interviews. Yeah. I mean, are there a lot of books out there about Scott or no? <laughs> There's a handful of books, but okay. for early Scott, you're going to see mostly, like reggae books with the first, you know, fourth of it or first third of it about ska. That was where I got a lot of my best. Uh, Bass Culture is the name of the, probably the best book I read on Jamaican ska. And that's a, technically a reggae book, but he starts at ska, goes to Rocksteady, goes to reggae, and then kind of touches on dance hall, which is the 80s sort of hip hop melding of reggae in Jamaica. Mm -hmm. So... And then there's some stuff written, there's some British stuff written on Two-Tone. There's some BBC documentaries that are made because it was so big there on that stuff. There's there's a few people that have written books. I, there wasn't a lot of people that wrote much about 90s or American Scott. That's changing. There's a couple other people that are working on some stuff too and that are probably going to come out either right around the same time as my book or a little after. You know, we'll kind of see. But, Scott. <laughs> renaissance yeah. here <laughs> um now here's a question it's like why jamaica and wh why this type of music i mean if that makes sense i mean mm -hmm. why did it originate there instead of say the logical choice like africa or you yeah. know somewhere else you know anywhere else you know well it was a combination of things one of the things that happened was in jamaica a lot of the people there you know we're talking about people who live in, in more of the ghetto areas they loved American R&B. They loved jazz. They would get this music from radio. They would have DJs would spin this music. Um, at some point, you know, there's no clear cut line because you're talking about oral history at this point and everyone's got a different story. But basically, with the combination of the, the folk music, mento music, which sounds a little closer to Calypso and their love for R&B and jazz, and their attempt to play this music or kind of put their own spin on it, it kind of came out different. You know, the beats were kind of backwards in a weird way. They they flipped the the beats are on the on the upbeats instead of the downbeats, and it kind of evolved from that. But it, it was definitely R and B and jazz were huge influences, and that's just because they that music was really popular. And then that became the music that you know that became the music was, was ska music and stuff. <laughs> were, were the beat. Uh, were the beats intentional or is it just a happy accident? Uh, that's, Nobody that's really. I don't know if there's a clear okay. answer on. I, my guess okay. is happy accident. That would okay. be my guess. Yeah. Yeah. 
I mean, it, it kind of reminds me of, you know, I'll talk about monkeys since I have a monkeys book, but uh, there's an episode of the monkeys where uh, they're talking about the difference between uh, rock music and soul music. Now, it's very basic, and it's like, I don't know if I even agree with it, but, you know, uh, they're saying rock music has the beat on the first and third beat, whereas uh, soul music has it on the second and fourth beat, you know, and it's like, I, I kind of get what they're saying, but it seems like very simplistic way of saying, yeah. <laughs> saying you know, how, how the music evolved differently. But um, I wouldn't expect there would be any clear-cut thing. But, you know, you, you did mention Calypso, and I'm wondering how that kind of, you know, because like Harry Belafonte did big records back in the 50s that were popular yeah. here and stuff like that. How did that kind of all fit in at that time? Well, Calypso was, I think, actually the main country of origin for Calypso was um, not Jamaica, but like Trinidad and a few others. Um, Calypso in Jamaica existed more as tourist music, kind of. Like, they, you'd go to the more popular parts of Jamaica, and there'd be a band playing Calypso. Mm -hmm. um, in fact, like, if you watch that movie, Dr. No, the James Bond movie, yeah, yeah. there's a, <laughs> a band who played ska music normally, uh, Byron Lee and the Dragoneers. They were the band in uh, the bar scene of that oh, movie. Wow. Okay. They were. You know, <laughs> yeah, I mean, I remember the scene, but I mean, yeah, I don't know so if they, I knew if they had a name or. <laughs> they were playing calypso, but normally the, yeah. that's a ska band. Huh. Interesting. Yeah. And yeah. that's like that movie was like 1960, I think. So that's so that's when all that stuff was happening. Or 62, so, 62, but yeah. <laughs> um. <clears throat> so, but Mento, I mean. Mento is a little is similar. You can hear diff, you can hear similarities between Mento and Calypso, and that that music had an impact in ska. Now I can I'll tell you the reason that ska revival happened in England. There's a very specific reason why mm. it why it happened in England and not the U.S. For instance, and the reason is is because both the U.S. and England had mass immigration from the Caribbean islands, oh. but the uh, the immigrants. The immigrants, the immigration situation was different. In the U.S., you had a lot of uh, black people already in the U.S. and black culture already existed in the U.S. So a lot of people that came from Jamaica and the Caribbean kind of assimilated into American black culture for the most part. Mm -hmm. um, but in England, it was more of an immigrant community the way we're used to like Latino communities here in the U.S. So you had these pockets of Caribbean immigrants that lived and kind of maintained their culture. They kept their music, their food. They had in, in Jamaica, there's a popular way they listen to music. It's called sound system. They like, they started DJs with these giant speakers. A lot of times it was outside. If it was inside, super loud, you know, just bass turned up. You had a lot of sound systems that went to England. So the music was really vibrant in England. Mm -hmm. So you had second generation Caribbean kids who are now English, but their parents immigrated. You had um, a lot of the poor white kids live near the Jamaican community. So they're kind of hearing this music. They're kind of digging this music. So that's the backdrop of ska getting a revival in England is that music is kind of around. But in the U.S. it wasn't really around much because – you know, like a good a good store anecdote about what happened was uh, one of the one of the architects of hip hop is named uh, DJ Cool Herc. Mm -hmm. He's a Jamaican immigrant. Mm. He brought sound system Jamaican culture to the Bronx, 
Mm-hmm. And the culture was, like I said, you're spinning music, mm-hmm. and the DJ talks between the songs, and you're, you have the loudspeakers, you're playing it out. He would play that in the Bronx, and he would do it the way that he knew to do it, which was reggae music, mm-hmm. rock steady, you know, all that music. This is in the early 70s. He, and it just kind of, they didn't really care for it. <laughs> so and you know he and so he's like okay I'll play soul music that's what they like so he's spinning soul music people dig it they like the outdoor speakers they like it and from that and he talked in between songs kind of talked there was a rhythm to the talking so that this kind of laid some of the groundwork for what became hip hop he was right. taking these elements of Jamaican culture but since it did it fell flat it, he modified it to make it more American. Hmm. But you didn't have that modification so much in England. Hmm. That's very interesting. Yeah, yeah. I've seen I've seen some uh, documentaries on hip hop, but they don't really go into the ska connection too much. Yeah, I mean they do talk about Jamaica and they talk about the Caribbean and stuff like that, but they they kind of leave that bit out. I mean, I don't know. Is there a reason why they would leave it out? Just because it kind of is such a difference. Uh, I, I, you know, from you I know, think that's so, like an like an in the weeds sort of detail about the the hip hop because there's so much more stuff that happened. Then you're talking about right. they they're they're building on the breaks rather than the songs. You know, right. because they're discovering that the breaks are more popular than the actual melodies, and there's all <laughs> kinds of steps that happen. But the earliest steps were just more the the Jamaican sound system culture being mm-hmm. taken here and tra- changed over to soul music. Yeah. yeah. Hmm. Very interesting. Okay, well, um, I don't know if I have any other questions for you right now. Um, sure. I always usually just kind of wrap it up by just saying, you know, you, you mentioned you don't really have any other book ideas you can disclose, but uh, I guess give, a, you know, one more big promotional push if people want to get in contact with you mm-hmm. uh, or a website or anything like that uh, or if they want yeah. to get autograph copies or whatever. <laughs> Uh, my website is aaron-carnes.com, so they can. There's a link to buy the book, and the books on the books on clashbooks.com. And uh, I also am. So one thing I am working on right now is I am working on. I'm creating a Substack newsletter. Uh, people can sign up on my website. I'll, I'll start sending out uh, newsletters this month, and on my you know other interesting stuff. It'll be stuff about my book, but it'll also be music journalism stuff and i'll probably do some original reporting as i get going into the next year mm-hmm. and i think i'm working on a uh, podcast component too so we'll have some some of that stuff maybe in december january okay so yeah. and that's something that all that information is on my website Aaron. okay yeah, yeah i signed up for it today i just said oh you have a mailing list <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> um and uh any uh, I know we're still in the pandemic. I, I used to ask this in the early days. Because I started this podcast in 2018, and back then you could say, well, are you going to appear at any shows or anything like that? I mean, but uh, is there anything in the plans in the near future for, like, you know, even bookstores or something, you know, wear a mask, but, you know, sign some books or something? Or is it too, too early yet? Yeah, I think people are still waiting and seeing them. Since my book technically releases in May, it's really hard for me to know what, the state of the world's going to be like in May. So mm-hmm. right now I'm just going to do as much uh, promotion this way I can, you know, now and see what happens. Yeah. All right. Well, try to help you out any way I can, sure. you know, I you, know I always, you know, that's why I have this podcast. It was uh, 
my friend Lee Hester of Lee's Comics who mm-hmm. encouraged me to do this. And, you know, it, it, to me, it's like, it gives me an excuse to talk to friends. And also, if you're working sure. on something, it's interesting to hear about it. So, all right. Well, I want to thank Aaron for being my special guest today. On sure, the thank you. Podcast. Nice to talk to you. And uh, uh, we'll see you next time. All right. All right. Thank you for listening, and thank you, Aaron Carnes, for being my special guest. Episode number 97 will be coming soon. If you would like to comment and or be a guest on this podcast, please drop me a line at funideas.mark at gmail.com. Become a patron of Mark Arnold and Fun Ideas Productions. If everyone listening just contributed a dollar a month, that would be a tremendous help in continuing the production of my books and this podcast. Also, subscribe to my YouTube channel. The opening and closing music for the Fun Ideas podcast is provided courtesy of Andrew the Slow Poisoner Goldfarb and is used with permission. This has been the Fun Ideas podcast. This is Mark Arnold speaking. This episode is copyright 2020, Fun Ideas Productions. Thank you and good night. Headed home to a cardboard hut with duct tape doors. I'm paying Be glad it isn't yours Now get up Don't fall back Don't fall back